The Lord be with you. This morning, because we're not able to worship together, and because I'm not able to preach in person, I've recorded this in lieu of the sermon. I hope everyone is well and have had a chance to worship this morning with your families, in your homes, using the liturgy that was sent along with this link. What we are currently facing is new to us, but it is nothing new. The church has faced many similar challenges before, and what they teach us is to remain faithful to Jesus Christ and to one another with courage, compassion, and common sense. As I mentioned in the letter that was sent Friday, it is unclear how long we will need to suspend our corporate worship and other gatherings, but please be assured that the session and pastoral staff are in constant virtual contact and are monitoring the ever-changing landscape regarding the current pandemic. We will alert you to any changes to our current practices as the situation warrants it. In the meantime, please follow the best and latest medical advice available and continue to maintain your other spiritual disciplines. And now, our scripture reading. Today's reading comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-21. through 21. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in, the, in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of the Lord. John has been proclaiming to us what we have known from the beginning, that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God made flesh. 
In the first chapter, we were reminded that God is light, and John writes and declares this truth so that we may have fellowship with God and with one another, so that our mutual joy might be made complete, and so that we may not sin. In the second chapter, John offered three assurances that we know God, that is, we have a relationship with God if we keep His commandments, if we love our brothers and sisters, and if we confess that Jesus is the Christ. In the third chapter, John once again reminded us that we are the children of God and that loving one another gives us the further assurance that we are passed from death into life and that we can approach God in confident prayer as the children of God. In the fourth chapter, John expands on what he said at the end of chapter 3, that there is really just one commandment, that we believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another that we believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. This is the one commandment that we have to obey. So in verses 1 through 6, he focuses on the first part of the one commandment, that we believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And then in verses 7 through 21, he focuses on the second half of the one commandment, that is, that we love one another. In the first six verses, John warns us against false spirits, and he once again gives us an either-or option for differentiating between false prophets, that is, those who have the spirit of the Antichrist, from those who have the spirit of God. And here's the test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Earlier in chapter 2, John said something very similar. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. It appears that there were those in their faith community who had denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. John appeals now to the apostolic tradition, that is, to those who had heard Jesus, had seen him, had walked with him, had eaten and drank with him, had joked with him, had suffered together with him, and had touched and handled him. These were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is the testimony from the beginning affirmed by the Spirit of God and preserved for us in the Gospels. Jesus Christ is the one unique Son of God, the Word of Life. And yet, somehow, At the same time, Jesus is also fully human in the flesh, just like us. Jesus' nature and identity is the core point of contention then, and it is still the central issue today. As Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? This is the question that we all must answer. The truth is that a lot of people claim to be Christians then and now, but certainly are not Christians in any meaningful, historical, or orthodox sense. In recent weeks, because of the news about the coronavirus, you have probably heard about the Shincheonji Church in Korea. As I understand it, its founder, Lee Man-hee, is a self-proclaimed Messiah and is believed by his adherents to be Jesus Christ returned to earth. It's hard to believe that people fall for such nonsense, but they supposedly have a quarter of a million followers, 
many of whom undoubtedly believing that their supposed version of Christianity is the real thing. Group like, groups like this remain small or die out after a generation, but sometimes they survive and thrive and become acceptable either as a new religion or as an acceptable offshoot of an established religion. The Unification Church, the Unitarians, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many others were initially categorized as cults, but over time as they gained adherence, as they softened some of their edges and doctrines, they became acceptable, and to the culture at large, they are seen as just another variation of Christianity. No better, no worse than the Presbyterians. But John would say, they are not of the same spirit as us. As the overall ignorance of the Bible and of history escalates among those in and outside the church, it becomes increasingly difficult for many people, many sincere people, to ding- distinguish between these groups from Orthodox Christian faith. Because most of these cults, these groups, take elements of the Christian faith, take elements of the Christian truth, and they spin it to what they want it to say, and will argue that they alone now have the right interpretation of scriptures. Some people may say, well, as long as they're nice people and do some good in the world, what's the harm in having some weird beliefs or practices? Who cares if they think that giving all their money to their organization will ensure that they get a ticket on the ship of salvation, maybe a first class seat? As long as they don't interfere with my life, what's the big deal? Perhaps for the world, it makes no difference what one believes as long as their actions are not harmful to others. Perhaps if there was nothing more to this life, it wouldn't matter. Perhaps if their actions really did not harm anyone else. But as Christians, we believe that truth does matter and that there is more to life than this life alone and that there is salvation in no other name than Jesus Christ. The truth still matters. We want truthful engineers building bridges, not those who fudge the math. We want the truth when it comes to matters of health. Imagine if you went to a doctor and the doctor was a very nice person, charming, and told you that you were doing great. The problem is that he doesn't actually do any tests, but he says that he can tell how you are doing just by holding your hands. Would you like that? You would be suspicious because it goes against your common sense and all that you have known about medicine. You would want to know the truth about your condition, not just what he imagines it to be or what you might want it to be. You don't want false assurances because if you had an actual life-threatening disease, you would want to know so that you could follow a course of action to get healing. You don't want just to hear something so that you will feel good about yourself. The truth has consequences. Unfortunately, this sort of scenario is not as far-fetched as it may sound. Recently, I was reading that there were so many diploma mills in the world that offer degrees for a price that by some estimates, half, half of all new PhDs in this country are fake. Half. 
Some studies indicate that there may be more than a half a million Americans holding fake degrees. Maybe it doesn't matter to you that someone pretends to have a degree in economics to get a job at a bank. But what about those who fake a degree in medicine? People actually pose as healthcare professionals, often in small rural areas where they are less likely to get caught. When you go to a doctor, you assume that those who are going to see you have a real degree and real training, but how many of us actually check the credentials of our doctors? I know that when I go, I just look on the wall and see all the impressive certificates and trust that those degrees are real. They certainly look real with their Latin and the fancy seals. I'm not suggesting that we become paranoid and be suspicious of everyone, but John's advice to test the spirits, especially in matters of the spirit, is important because we know that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. You may meet powerful public speakers, charismatic people, likable personalities who can sound impressive and speak Christianese. But how do you know if they are of the Spirit of God or being led by the Spirit of the Antichrist? And John says, we don't need to fear. There's a test. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. As you know, many cults and false churches will make some sort of confession about Jesus. Many will say that they too believe in Jesus. But if you pay careful attention to what they actually say, you will always find that they either add or subtract from who Jesus is as he is attested to in the scriptures. They will subtly change either Jesus' full humanity or his full divinity. And John provides some additional help to his test a little later in this chapter in verse 14 that a part of the confession is that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So when we confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, we are also saying that he was sent by God to be the Savior of the world and that he is the one unique Son of God. Full humanity, full divinity, the one Son, the one who died for our sins. That Jesus came in the flesh implies not only his divinity that he came from God and not only his humanity that he was in flesh like us, But it also points to the purpose of his life, his death on the cross for our sins, that we might have life, that this is the reason that he was sent from God as our Savior. Any addition or subtraction to the person and work of Jesus Christ is of the Antichrist. It's, of course, impossible to list all the ways in which Christ is being twisted by every false teaching. But as C.S. Lewis noted, The best protection against bad literature is to read good literature. The best inoculation you can have against the spirit of the Antichrist is to know Jesus so well that a fake becomes obvious. It's my understanding that the way they teach people how to identify counterfeit money is not by having them study all the possible ways that it might be fake, but to have them get to know the real thing so well 
that any variation of the real will become noticeable. You don't have to know all the evil spirits. You don't have to know all the spirits of the Antichrist. You just need to know well the Spirit of God. You just have to know Jesus very well. Now, starting in verse 7, John returns to his favorite theme of love. Some people have called verses 7 through 21 a dartboard passage. That is, it's so rich that you could throw a dart at it and it will land on something awesome. John repeats much of what we have heard already, that love is a sign of our rebirth in God, that love is a sign that we know God, and that God's love is proved in the sending of his son who died for our sins. But among all the things that John says, none is more startling or important than this statement. God is love. God is love. As Christians, this has become so familiar that we don't think twice about it. But it was an absolutely shocking statement to the Greek world. The Apostle Paul, for example, acknowledged that the good news of Jesus Christ is foolishness to the Greeks. If you, re- if you can recall your early school days in the study of Greece and Rome and their mythologies, you may remember that the Greek and Roman gods were incredibly violent, vindictive, and capricious. They acted more like petty demons or evil human beings than powerful gods. Into this world, John says, God is love. It would have been an absurd idea. Not only is God the source of love, not only is love a characteristic of God, but John says that God is love, that God is synonymous with love. There are many words used to describe God's character in the Bible, but such absolute statements are very rare. To say that God is love is different than saying that God is loving. We might say God loves in the same way that God creates or God judges or God saves. Loving is one of God's many good activities for us. But when we say that God is love, we're saying that all that God does, all that God is, is fully immersed in love. It is what characterizes all of his other actions. God creates in love. God calls us in love. God judges in love. God blesses in love. God sustains in love. God rebukes in love. God saves in love. God does all these things because God is love. All of his actions are motivated, shaped, and rooted in love because that is who God is. And it is from this foundation that God's greatest expression of love arises. Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. And this is love. Not that we love, but that he first loved us. Jesus Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. There is the priority of God's love for us. We are expected to love God and to love others, but only in response to what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. This is so important, but it's something that we keep forgetting. It is God's love that initiates. It does not depend on us. It doesn't even begin with you wanting to be saved or to be loved or even to believe. 
nor do you have to get your life together or measure up to some impossible standard to be able to start. To quote President Donald Trump out of context, there was no quid pro quo. God chose in our favor, irrespective of our ability to love. God loves you because God is love. There is no explanation. There is no exchange. There is no expectation. God simply loves because God is love. Those of you who are parents have experienced this. You love your newborns about as absolutely as is possible before that infant has done anything. Just as you hold that child in your arms, you know that you would do anything and everything for that child. There is no unrealistic expectation for what that child will become, at least not yet. You have made no demands on that child. You only know love for that child. And such is the love God has for us. So since God has loved us in this manner, we also must love one another. Otherwise, we show that we are not really his children. Love is so essential to who God is that we are just liars if this essential quality is not expressed in our lives in the love of our brothers and sisters. John says that just as God is, so are we in this world. That's a remarkable statement. How is God? Well, God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is a creator. But none of those things apply to us. What does apply to us is that God is love. And so are we to be in this world. John even goes on to say that no one has ever seen God. But if we love God, God abides in us. If we love, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. In other words, we can't see God. But maybe others can see God in us when we love. In the Broadway musical Les Mis, the final word spoken by the dying but redeemed Jean Valjean is, and remember the truth that once was spoken, to love another person is to see the face of God. Maybe Victor Hugo was thinking of these words from John when he wrote that. God can't be seen, but God can be known when love is demonstrated. I briefly mentioned last Sunday that there are different words in Greek for love, and the word for love that John and the New Testament writers consistently use is agape. The scholar W.E. Vine noted that agape is always used in commands to love God. This is important because you can't make anyone feel love toward anyone else. But you can command agape love, that is to act in a loving way. It's a choice. It's a matter of obedience arising out of understanding of gratitude, and of joy. As we're in the midst of a pandemic in this country, I was reminded that in earlier times, Christians took extraordinary measures to demonstrate love for their brothers and sisters. I've heard, for example, that in Calvin's Geneva, during an outbreak of the plague, deacons of the church would draw straws to see who would go visit the sick. They knew that whoever did the visiting might catch the disease and die. And yet they also knew that it was their Christian duty to love their brothers and sisters, to ease their suffering. And so they went in obedient love. 
I'm not suggesting that we visit those who are contagious with deadly diseases, only pointing out that love often requires obedient sacrifice. We are not excused from loving one another during times of crisis. In the past week, I've heard stories from our congregation of people reaching out to one another during this time through texts, emails, and other socially responsible ways. I'm so thankful that I get to be part of a community that continues to demonstrate the love of God to one another, and such demonstrations gives me greater confidence that indeed the Spirit of God is with us and that indeed we continue to abide in God. In this extraordinary season, we will need to continue to find other creative ways to love one another without being physically present. How might we show care for one another without being able to gather bodily together? How might we best use the technology available to us to reach out and stay connected and love one another? In times of crisis, there is always a lot of fear. If you have been to Costco's or Wegmans lately, you probably saw a lot of panicky shoppers driven by fear. So perhaps the question we want to consider this week is, will my life be motivated by fear or by love? Is my desire to hoard food and toilet paper based on a reasonable need or rooted in irrational fear? Do I really need masks for myself? Or is my fear potentially depriving those who may really need them? In light of all the fear and anxiety surrounding us, we can respond differently to one another and to the world in light of God's love for us, in the confidence of God's love for us. John says that there is no fear in love. John is thinking of the fear that some people may feel about their goodness before God, wondering if they will face punishment for not having been good enough or having done enough. To them and to us, John reassures us that there is no fear of God in love. There is no fear. You have heard that the opposite of love is hate or perhaps it is apathy. But as the uh, writer and preacher John Sloan Coffin says in his message on this text, he says that the opposite of love is fear. It's fear. We need not fear because God is love. When we know how deeply God loves us in Jesus Christ, there is no fear. Our actions need not be overwhelmed and consumed by fear. Remember, greater is he who is in you than he and all that is in the world. Amen.